Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. There's that music. Good morning. Good morning. It's about two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on three triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Dr. Beach. Dr. Beach, how are you? I'm very well. And you? Well enough as one can be. Bit over it? Bit over it. (laughs) Just a bit. Just, just happy not to have another pandemic. (laughs) I'm kind of enjoying the whole home thing. Uh, well, I mean, I, I I am actually. I've kind of really enjoyed the time with the family. Like that's been awesome. But you know, I, I I've I've learned to appreciate that um, having a pandemic every year is probably going to be a good. Not having a pandemic every year is a good thing. Indeed. <laughs> I just. Uh, but anyway, here we are, and and you feel like you're almost right next to me. Well, I do. Yeah, we're, we're just separated by a thin sheet of glass. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. Because I'm radioactive. Yeah, I know. Well, you got to clear that, honestly. You gotta do something about that. We, um, it's lovely to see you though through the thin sheet of glass. <laughs> it's really quite lovely. And this is the first time I've been back in these fair studios of Three Triple R on the corner of Blythe and Nelson Street for um, some time. It has been. You've been in the big ISO, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Hey, now we have a, a uh, an awesome show today. Actually, I mean, let's do that plug first. Before we do though, I, we got to thank Tim. Uh, I just, you know, it's the superlatives. Do we? Where do we start? Have you got any superlatives left for Tim? Oh, no, I don't have any. Except a thank you for the hardest working man in radio. <laughs> Absolutely, I reckon he should be up for another honour this year. Yeah, I reckon. What do you reckon? Another uh, gong. Yeah, they don't do OBEs anymore, do they? Don't think so. No, maybe we could get him an AO. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should start the Tim for AO campaign. Tim for God. Tim for, I don't think they have one of those actually yet either. <laughs> Um, yeah, Indeed, anyway, it is going to be just, a fun show. Yeah, it is. We've got, we got a lot on, actually. You've got some very interesting papers. I'm going to kick off with a couple of papers, yeah. Um, we're going to spend a bit of time in the mesopelagic. Oh, as you do. As you do. You know, when one's in a pandemic, yeah, why not get out of it and spend some time in the mesopelagic? In the mesopelagic with elephant seals. Looking Ooh. for, um, yeah, looking for prey, looking for luminous prey down in those dark depths, 200 to 1,000 metres down. Ooh. Yeah. You paint that so well, that image. It's pretty dark. <laughs> and then I'm going to then I'm going to go further into the depths yeah. and look at um at how plastics, microplastics <sighs> settle and some first hard data we've got on you know, once it gets you know, we know there's a lot on the surface, garbage patches, all that. We've known about that for a while, but there's got to be a sink for plastics. They've got to end up somewhere, those microplastics. And <sighs> one of the first big studies appeared in science this week, uh, which is telling us about well, a bit bit of mapping of it. Off the coast of Corsica, Corsica, in the Tyrrhenian Sea, just to the left of Italy. Just to the left? Just to the left that's of in, Italy, That's yeah. inside the Mediterranean, but that's specific. Like in that yeah, I, I guess I yeah. should have used the word west, to the west of Italy. Yeah, yeah. Between, Cors- <laughs> between Corsica and Italy. I, I, I got it. You know, I just I know that net nautical term, just to the left of. Well, I guess somebody could have been inside the earth and looking up a underneath good point. Italy. Yeah. And then to the left would have been to yeah, the east. Yeah, lying on a beach on the, would it be the Amalfi Coast? No, it's the other side. And then just think, actually, that's to the right. Yeah. If you're lying well, facing, thinking, you know, with your feet facing south. Well, I was thinking more being the core of the earth. <laughs> okay, anyway. Up. So, yes. So, to the west, that little sea there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about it? 
Oh, what about it? Oh, oh, <laughs> Sorry. The, the plastics. You know, the, the, the we took you to of, a place an, that you didn't want to go there. Analysis of plastics in that sea, the Tyrrhenian Sea. And, um, oh, I'm interested to hear that. And then after that, I, um, Dr. Becky Morris from the University of Melbourne joins us from the National Centre for Coast and Climate in our uh, monthly coastal adaptations um, conversation. And this one I have to declare a complete and utter involvement in. Um, I'm a co-author on a paper that Becky and I and Professor Steve Swearer had in uh, the August journal Nature Climate Change earlier this week. That's right. You sent me that to have a read. And guess what? I didn't read I forgot all about it. Thanks, Pat. Sorry, I'm I'm going to be be flying by the seat of my pants here. (laughs) Anyway, um, we're going to talk about it. It's actually um, really, it's Becky's paper. She's the lead author. And we've had minor contributions really in the grand scheme of things. Uh, It's about nature-based coastal defences. But this before that, field. But before that, you mentioned the word nature climate change. So, yeah, hearty congratulations, Anth. <laughs> got got you. yourself on a name and um, got your name on a paper in Nature Climate Change. Yeah, no, it's a, yeah, that, I've, you know, I have very few goals in life, but that was one of them. The um, the and then and hiking in Upper Mongolia. Anyway, <laughs> the, so the so I would tick tick. I just have to do the other. We're not allowed to fly yet. Um, so that'll be that'll be great to talk to Becky about um, nature-based coastal defences. And then at the end of the show, just before we pass over to the doctors who have already started to amass well amass within the pandemic frame of reference malpractice is in i think he's getting his malpractice ready he's actually he looks like he's getting his slot ready working out what he's going to talk about um uh they, they you know that that is amassing that is the pandemic version of amassing uh so you know that doctors will be in before we pass over to what will be an enlightened uh doctoral um kind of medical kind of thingy dave donnelly from Killer Whales Australia is joining us with a kind of a winter whale roundup. Can you say that with a winter whale roundup? I think you can, yeah. 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 And he's also going to tell us about um, carving of common dolphins in Port Phillip Bay. Sent us a very beautiful picture of this. Oh my God, cute baby dolphins. Go like, on. Honestly, I didn't. Like, yes. Are they pups? They're pups, aren't they? Calves. Calves. They're calves. <gasps> yeah. yeah, that is a cute photo. We've got a very cute photo of, of a baby pup dolphin calf. Maybe yep. we should try and get that on our Facebook. Anyway, have you got the weather? Uh, I have got a bit of weather. Okay. Um, what do you yes, think? Well, it's winter in Melbourne. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. Today's going to be 12, uh, 13, Monday, 14. Nothing getting above 16 throughout the week. Not too much rain. Maybe a little bit of a Ooh. sprinkle during the week. But, it's um, not as bad as I thought. No. Nah. No. Nah. hope I'm not looking at Melbourne, Florida here. No, <laughs> it, is Melbourne, it is Melbourne, Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, tides, I've got no idea because I don't have the Sunday age in front of me and that's where I get the tide data from. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, but those you haven't you navigated are, the those of you who are heading, <laughs> Those of you who are heading out on the water will be interested in doing what's happening with the tides and will you, you will have informed yourselves, I think. Is <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is comprehensive. Is there that's anything comprehen- else you'd like to I'm say? Pre- I'm, I'm pretty good at doing the weather. Yeah. No idea what's happening with the surf. Maybe we should have rung Dr. Surf, get him out of bed in his retirement. He's, he's, he's probably been in it. He's, been out of bed and on the waves, I would imagine. Down, Do you think? Down at the niche. He probably, he may. Well, now he can. He would have been. Down the backside of the yeah, niche. Yeah, yeah. And, you yeah. know, is there anything we could add about, the, like, have you got a wind direction there? No. No. <laughs> oh, five kilometres. Is that a direction? <laughs> I'm going to put you out of misery at this point <laughs> and, and request that you no longer continue with the weather. Oh. No, that's not a direction. That's an an amount. Hey, World... Now, it was World Environment Day on Friday. 
June 8th. It is World... No. Oh, no, no. It will June 5. It is World in Oceans Day tomorrow. June 8th. So we are smack bang in the middle of the two. Yeah. And I want to talk to let you know about... It. So there's lots on anyway. Have a look around. I know, for example, the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability in Victoria... Uh, Dr. Gillian Sparks, her office has released a series of stunning um, marine photos online to celebrate World Environment and World Oceans Day, uh, taken by Gillian Finn, I think, at um, the uh, the museum in Melbourne. So there's a stunning set of photos there, um, and I think they're releasing them on social media. So, so go and have a look at their social media feed, and you'll see some beautiful photos. Um, and then also... It's a really cool little thing, Plastics, Plastic Oceans Australasia, which is not a group who wish to make the ocean into plastic. That's good. Yes, no, it is a group who wish to clean the ocean of plastic. It's encouraging to hear. Yeah, they've, they've got a, uh, a an event happening with prizes. It's for schools, basically. It's Turn the Tide Film Competition, and it's open basically now, I think. Oh, no, it's to celebrate. Actually, it is open now. Um, and it is oceans, plasticoceans.org.au. And you can have a look at that and Google Turn the Tide. Um, entries closed. And basically what you do is with your school friends, you produce a five-minute film showing how you're going to or already have reduced your plastic consumption at school. There is, um, there's some, there's prizes, there's kind of like a personal care prize there's um there's a trip to new zealand which you can actually do by then i think later in the year anyway there's all kinds of cool stuff um and then to celebrate world ocean Day, plastics ocean australia is hosting a competition um when 25 words or less tell us what you love the most about the ocean yeah. And there's about 400 bucks worth of prizes. Pretty cool stuff. And you've got till um, the end of November to get that video in. So that's yeah, so that's panic. Time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't have to go out and do it today. You can think about it. Yeah. Give some thought to it. Pretty cool thing. What you've already done to reduce your personal impact at school or your school impact. Because yep. um, I know a lot of schools are doing that. A lot of schools are plastic free. Yep. Um, which is just fantastic that kids are doing that. Anyway, we'll post some of that in our Facebook when, um, you know, get around to opening up Facebook. Uh, we got anything else? No. no you got really. any news you want to share? No, not really. I'm going to play a bunch of tracks this morning that are all by Indigenous artists, all by First Peoples from Australia. Um, we're going to kick off with... Um, well, I, so and, and it is because, frankly, Black Lives Matter and uh, Aboriginal Lives Matter, and this is just to point out the extraordinary living culture that exists in this country, the oldest living culture in the world. Which I got to say, every time I say that, I get goosebumps. Oh, absolutely, and I just get I just get goosebumps of horror at what Consent Rio Tinto have just done. Oh my done. gosh! I just can't believe that. It's just. Oh. I know. I actually, when I, I t- when I first heard it, it was a couple of weeks back, and when it happened, I actually, I felt sick. And that was the only like evidence of Ill. continual habitation for twenty thousand yeah. years in inland Australia. There's a long way to go in this country before we get it, isn't there? Indeed, you are on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. It's about 16 minutes past the hour of 9 o'clock, isn't it, Dr. Bench? It is, it, it is 9 o'clock, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. get that right Yeah, at some point. Hey, um, that was um, Titus, of course, from their wonderful last live album. Show us your Titus. Um, A very beautiful track. Well chosen, Anthem. 
Lou Bennett, Amy Saunders, and Sel Dasty there. Yeah. Can I um, talk about microplastics? Why don't we talk about microplastics? Yeah, microplastics. Less than one mil. Well, yeah, if you take a little chunk of plastic, and um, if its biggest dimension is less than one millimeter, yeah, um, that's a microplastic. So that also includes microfibers, which we've heard a lot about as well. So as the, in yeah, the bits stuff. that come off your yeah, the, you know, come off your Katmandu jacket. Yeah, and, right. And that sort of thing. So. Wash those very infrequently because they are hard to filter out and they go out into the environment. We've had many, we've known quite a while about enormous amount of plastics which are going into the ocean and we've seen what's happened on the surface with the, um, the garbage dumps. But there has to be a sink. All that has to go somewhere and it's yeah. assumed that it just goes, rains down onto the sea floor. But no one's really got hard data on what that looks like. So does, is it just in this you know, normal, well not normal, but sort of evenly spaced mass around the place no it's not we have the first data here from a group uh, a group of european scientists who have taken data from 2008 well a, a cruise yeah uh, they call it a cruise but you know it's a proper scientific expedition <laughs> in they the weren't on the uh, ruby princess no they were no. not on the ruby princess no uh, in the tyrrhenian sea which is just between corsica and mainland italy and they've taken can i just can i just ask there did you know the Mediterranean had subseas in it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. How many has it got? Is uh, the one between Italy and um, and the Baltic, is that... Well, like the, the Adriatic's called a sea. Of course, the Adriatic is a sea, yes. Yes. So this is the other side of Italy, though, the Tyrrhenian. Yeah, this huh? is the Tyrrhenian. Tyrrhenian. Sorry, are, are there any other seas? In, oh, here I am showing and my... Adriatic, uh, and there is the other... Oh, the other one, which was... There's the, one, the Aegean. The, one, the Aegean is the, the other Aegean one I'm thinking of. Yeah. You're right. I did, oh, my gosh, I did know this. And the Aegean is the one between... Yeah. Is the one between Greece and, um, what do you call it? Turkey. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, back to this. Yeah, anyway, sorry. So yeah, but sorry. Yes. Ship yes. slight d- d- diversion. Drop stuff down to yeah. about, it gets down to about a thousand metres. It gets bloody deep down there. In some places, there are yeah. trenches and there are canyons and all of that. So, are the plastics, are these microplastics evenly distributed? No, they are not. They accumulate due to thermo, um, thermohaline currents. Which are. Well, temperature current? Temperature, temperature current, kind of yeah, and salt. Levels? You know, thermo, yeah, temperature, yeah, yeah. haline, salt. So depending on all of that, there are all sorts of currents in the water. And as you can imagine, just as happen, happens on land when water moves around it, it moves to certain spaces. And, of course, there's lots of water in the ocean, but you've got various currents which are forming canyons, underground canyons, and then there will be places where stuff settles. Yeah. And that's where they're seeing most of these microplastics. Not unreasonable to think that, but that's the first time we're getting these really hard data on that. And the really interesting thing about, well, one of the very interesting things about yeah. that is that these are also places where, nu- where nutrients get funneled to, if you like. So there's a lot of nutrients which are ending up in these places. Hence, there is, well, there was until the past, a lot of biodiversity there. At the moment, there is still a lot of biodiversity there. But if we are now getting sinks of plastics, the microplastics, in these very same spots, then that is, of course, oh dear. something a little bit to worry about. And so, it, was there evidence? Like, can it, did, was there, did they talk about quantities, volumes? Like, was it, is it kind of on the scale of, yeah, does it look like a kind of a, 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 a just, it mixes with the sediment and you can't tell? Or There's what shit happens? loads down there. That's a technical term. That's a, is it? That's a technical term. Right. Yeah, there is a lot of term, a lot of um, a lot of stuff down there. Uh, the numbers here, I can't, I can't find the numbers at the moment. They're not in front of me, but there is a lot. This is the largest recording of any um, amounts of microplastics in those 
deep regions. One of the reasons for that is it's the first time we've had a look at it. Yeah, and by yeah, the yeah. way, the ocean floor, we know so very little yeah. about the bathymetry of it. That is the surface contours and everything. So we know, and an interesting thing that they point out in this paper is that we know um, much more about the surface detail of Mars than we do about the surface, about the um, the oceans, the bottom of the oceans, of course. We've seen those data. But the resolution maps that we have of what the the geography of the surface of Mars looks like, we have that in much greater resolution yeah, than we do of the general sea floor. But there are certain places where we do have a lot of data, and that's yeah. why this place was chosen, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah, of because course. they know in very de- in a lot of detail from a lot of the, the stuff that Rex does, the people Just that are looking for shipwrecks and what yeah. do they call it, echo sounding and all of that. They can so build it. Do Stuff Dan Iridaikonu does down at Warner yeah, and yeah, Deacon. Absolutely. All of those wonderful data that he's generating now, they have that there. And that's why they went to this Do you think place. it means that now that that's been verified, which which is kind of like people have hypothesised that about where does the plastic go, you know, and but now you say there's actual verification. Do you think it means that 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 people would now be able to predict based on their understanding of other currents and other thermohaline, you know, movements, et cetera, big current movements, they can kind of go, all right, we reckon it's probably going to be going here and over here and not here. One of the reasons indeed why this study was done, yeah, so that yeah. they would get but you've got to know you've, you've got yeah, to verify. But, but first of all, yeah. well, but also you've got to know what the the geography of the sea yeah, floor looks like in the first place to know if there are canyons there or if there's trenches and places like that. How Very interesting. interesting. Yeah. And the other, just, just before I move on from no, no, this, no. Um, no. you've heard about the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene. The Anthropocene. So we have the Is Jurassic. That us? The, that's us. We have the <laughs> Jurassic. We have yeah. you know, the Cretaceous, all of those things. And they think that the new, well, the age that we are in now, we will probably end up calling the Anthropocene. And the boundaries between all of these geological, geological times are what we call, they've got this fantastic name. Some people might have heard of Golden Spike, but these are called Global Boundary Stratotype Section and Point. That's <laughs> wow, what, that, that, you just lost me there. That's what, <laughs> so the boundaries between geological time so there might yeah. have been a massive event like you know meteorite hitting the earth bang or humans arriving and making lots of plastics polluting the place and then bang you know lots of um lots of extinctions they reckon that plastics this layer of plastics which they can see now this layer of microplastics might in the in the future if we decide to go with the anthropocene as a geological time this will represent oh, the no. lower bound the lower boundary layer for it so for us, how so good is that? We're going to be archaeologists. We're going to be labelled by our layer oh, of plastic. No, couldn't we be labelled by our opera or our street art or our? But no, it's going to be our layer of plastic. No, they'll be chunking, it, punching it what they call golden spikes. I learned about golden oh, spikes reading about this, dear. and I realised that you know that just depresses me. Yeah, it does depress <laughs> you. I'm going to drag you off to something in the next okay, five yeah, tell minutes, me which, which is a little bit, little bit less depressing. Mesopelagic? Stick, still sticking with the depths. We're going to think about the mesopelagic, which is from 200 metres down to um, down to about a thousand metres. Southern elephant seals were looked at by um, a group of people who uh, scientists down in uh, French scientists, and I think somebody from the University of St Andrews in Scotland, yeah. uh, looked at a few southern elephant seals which hang down in the deep south, as you might imagine from their moniker. They were on Kerguelen, had a look, went to Kerguelen. Do you know where Kerguelen is, Anthony? Kerguelen That's Islands? A, I'm going to have a go at this. It's an isle, it's a set of islands, small mm-hmm. islands, in the deep southern ocean. That if you draw a line between kind of the bottom of Australia and the bottom of South Africa, it's about the middle if you drop down. Yeah, so if you went straight down from Sri Lanka, 
she had yeah, kept yeah, going okay, all yeah. like the, the way bottom down. Of India, one of the Lanka. most yeah, isolated yeah, yeah. bits of land on earth i think it's a thousand kilometers from madagascar which is the nearest thing and plastics turn up on the beach but anyway that's just a, a different aside they do. But they anyway, do, yeah. Yeah. also got elephant seals southern elephant seals on the beach yeah um, mesopelagic southern elephant seals like to hunt down there between 200 and 1,000 metres. And down there, there is a lot of most of the biomass there that the southern elephant eels. Southern eels? Elephant seals. They're very big eels. They're huge. <laughs> I've eels. just changed taxonomy here <laughs> midstream. Um, they eat luminous guys like you know, southern, uh, lanternfish. Yeah. Lanternfish. Lanternfish. lanternfish yeah. I realised doing the, the deep amount of research I do for these. Um, <laughs> constitutes about 50 or 60% of the biomass down there. There's no. hundreds of different species of land and fish going from you know, the size of your fingernail up to about 30 centimetres. So for the, those that don't know, the land and fish are the ones that have like a f- essentially a, a bio-produced light in their body somewhere. Bioluminescence. They have a couple of sorts. They even have... So many of the organisms down there, in fact, the vast majority of organisms that live down there, because there is no natural light, yeah. once you get past about 500 metres, there's a glow between about 200 and 500 metres. Yeah. But once you get deeper than that, there's zero, except for the bioluminescence emitted by living organisms. And they make and their own light. They make their own light. Lanternfish, they can either glow. They might have like a dull glow, and that is to... Mask their silhouette from something. So if they're down between 200 and 500 metres, and there's a bit of light coming through yeah, from above. Yeah. So if you've got a predator coming up from yeah, below, they're going to be silhouetted. Yeah. But really cannily, if you emit a little glow, then that compl- makes you invis- like the invisibility oh cloak. Oh, my goodness me. So they either have that yeah. or they have flashes. And the flashes um, are really kind of quick. Yeah. For the word flash. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they are, they are anti-predator <laughs> behaviour, but in two senses. Yeah. One of them, and this is all preamble, you know, too yeah, long yeah, a preamble yeah. before I actually get to the guts of this, <laughs> but the flashes are fascinating in the two senses. One of them is a really bright flash to scare predators. So they're okay. both, it's anti-predatory, is to scare the predator, or they think it can also be used to actually illuminate the predator for a bigger animal, bigger fish, which might come along and nail the predator and therefore save the person, or save the person, save the lanternfish that's giving this little flash. Wow. That's what, anyway, that's all that That's very all, cool. That's very anyway, cool. So, it so, is, yeah. So, so the illumin- illuminate your enemy, shine a <laughs> yeah, torch yeah. on your enemy. There he is, there he is, get him. I'm really small, take the bigger one. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, so you can world. imagine the southern elephant seals with their big eyes yeah, down there yeah, looking yeah. around. So they... They'd catch a flash, go, oh, I'll eat that one. But yeah. we have no data on that. You can't oh, put you wow. can't put a camera on a sudden elephant. Well, people well, do. Could, they they put all know, sorts of data might, loggers yeah, on yeah. there. So these these scientists put da- developed data loggers to try right. and detect the very low amount of light which is coming from luminescence, from bioluminescence. And the data loggers were not only doing that. So they're not flashing. What they're doing is detecting light. The, da- the data yeah. loggers, which they put on the the heads of three poor, unsuspecting elephant seals, southern yeah. elephant seals from Kerguelen. They also did, got a couple of seals from um, Argentina as well. Oh, okay. Um, and, but they actually lost the data loggers from them, unfortunately, oh. so it didn't get them back. Okay. Um, but don't worry about the elephant seals. They won't have the data loggers on them still because they molt every year. And, and they, they shed it. And they shed it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And the data loggers, they send a ping when they when they hit the surface, don't they? So you yeah. don't have to go back and get them off. They shed it. Yeah. And then it just becomes pollution. Oh, yeah. whoops. Yeah, yeah anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, don't know. We know zero about the interaction between southern elephant seals and the... Um, and lanternfish. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you other can, than they eat them, other than they eat them. Mm-hmm. But if you can detect the flash and use that as a proxy for a southern lanternfish, and then you can also yeah. with this biologger, you can detect what they call 
technical term here, jerking movements with the southern elephant seal's head. And that will indicate that they, 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 they take that as a proxy for fishing. Like I'm looking, looking around, around grabbing oh, I something. A look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And there's stuff down there which isn't bioluminescent as well, mm -hmm. so they're eating those. So they can they match, they've got all this data back, very cool. ma matching up the flash with the jerk. Yeah. And they're showing, not unsurprisingly, again, but you've got to get the data for this to show that it actually takes a lot more work for a sudden elephant seal to get something which is luminescent flashing at them like a lantern huh. than it does for another prey item, which is what wow. they suspected. But now they've got really nice hard data for it and been able to publish this in the, in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Wow, that is so cool. Except for there's a picture of a really, of a southern elephant seal with one of the data, data loggers on its head and it's oh. just going, oh, can you get this off? Oh, are they big? They're quite no. big. Yeah. And, they? and, and I really I really wonder about better ways of doing these, the, these analyses. I mean, it, can we miniaturize these things? Surely. It's, anyway, it, it's pretty. Well, it's, it's the size of it. You know, it's like putting an iPhone on someone. Yeah, an iPhone, which is a big, fat, you know, sort of iPhone, which is a couple of inches thick. Yeah, but an elephant seal is the size of um, a VW. Nevertheless, I'd like to see how yeah. well that elephant seal goes no, at cocktail yeah. parties and, you know, <laughs> picking up and all that kind of thing. Um, Dr. Becky Morris and I are, and uh, Professor Steve Swear are co-authors on a paper that came out in Nature Climate Change earlier this week, uh, all about nature-based coastal defences, and uh, I thought it would be a wonderful uh, opportunity to get... Um, um, Becky Morris to come in and talk with us this morning about that paper and nature-based coastal defences. Becky is a lecturer at the University of Melbourne and the National Centre for Coast and Climate. Good morning, Becky, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning, Anthony Dr. Beach. Thanks for inviting me on the show this morning. Absolutely. Hi, Becky. How are you going? Congratulations Hi. on this paper. Before we go any further, what a great thing for you it's wonderful and it's yeah it's fantastic thank you <laughs> this is all the scientists congratulating each other about being in nature um the um so now look let's start with although i know the answer to this question i think it's probably important for listeners what, like what is nature-based coastal defense yes i think that's a good place to start um so I'm going to start off with the nature part of it, and that is we're talking about coastal habitats that provide us with a natural coastal protection service. And these are things like salt marshes, mangroves, shellfish reefs, dunes and beaches, and they all provide us with this um, coastal protection through reducing wave height as it approaches the shore. They can accrete sediment so it stabilises our shoreline. But unfortunately, in a lot of places, we've actually lost those natural habitats. So when we're talking about nature-based coastal defense, it's actually either restoring or creating these habitats to provide us with um, that coastal defense service. And, and, um, sorry, okay. no, you go. No, go for it. And I was going to say that it can be done in a couple of different ways. So you can only... You in one way, you can just use just that natural habitat, and that's often referred to as kind of a soft approach. Um, but then it also can be integrated with kind of hard structures, and this is referred to as more of a hybrid approach. I guess the important thing is that we are still allowing kind of these natural functioning systems along our shoreline. And these would have been the systems over, you know, I guess as nature's been there that would have effectively protected the shoreline through history. Yes, that's right. So historically, our shorelines would have been protected by um, all these different ecosystems, um, and they've been lost through a number of different um, processes, including kind of anthropogenic impacts and human impacts. Becky, can I ask... Well, Becky and Anne. So nature-based 
coastal defences, would they include things like rock walls if that rock wall was not representative of a bit of coast that was there in the first place? So if you put in a rock wall, even though it's got it's made of rocks, you know, natural and all of that, um, but it's something, we're putting it in a place where there wasn't that kind of rock wall there in the first place. Yeah, so rock walls are the traditional way to protect um, the coast, as well how humans have protected the coast for, um, I guess, the past 7,000 years, actually. So we've got a long history of constructing these hard structures like seawalls and breakwaters and groins um, to try and protect us against hazards like erosion and flooding. Um, but into the future, because these structures... They are um, very static and they replace natural habitats. Um, so they have these environmental and economic impacts that we're kind of increasingly realizing that the, this may not be a good strategy um, or the only strategy that we should be using to protect our coast into the future. And I think I'd add to that that the, the thing that as Becky um, mentioned before that's really important about natural nature-based coastal fences is they're adaptive. So if they get knocked over, they grow back or there is something that grows in its place or, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if it's a completely hard structure that we've put in place, we have to maintain it. We have to, if it gets knocked over, we have to go and rebuild it. There are examples, and, and Becky will probably know more about this than I do in detail, there are examples where um, reefs have been built using, uh, you know, the naturally occurring uh, kind of rock, uh, about, you know, it's kind of, you know, seeded out there and then uh, oyster reefs uh, and oysters are built on it. And then over time, they become kind of self um, kind of seeding and and they start to you know like effectively they become like a natural reef that can take decades to do that that's one of these hybrid things that becky was talking about where you know you kind of use a bit of kind of hard structure but then you can get it to yep. become that natural and I, I was thinking becky about that you know it's probably important for us to help explain to people why this matters at the moment yes um, so I guess, as I said, we're increasingly realizing that these hard structures that we've been using for a long time um, have environmental consequences because they, they completely harden our shoreline, taking away these natural habitats, and they're very, very kind of makes the coastline very homogenous or very similar along the entire um, kilometers of shoreline. Um, and also... Like we said, they're non-adaptive. So in terms of climate change, they're very expensive to build and maintain. Um, and also in Victoria, the marine and coastal policies come in recently as well. So it is particularly timely um, to be looking at different ways to protect our coast. Um, do we need to build on the coast? And if we do, are there different ways that we can do this that will be more adaptive and sustainable into the future? One of the other things that surprised me as we went through the process of producing this was um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's cheaper to build <laughs> this stuff. It's cheaper to maintain this stuff. Um, and yet it seems not to be the first thing that people use. And so part of what we were wondering in this paper and trying to find information on was why is it that people don't use nature-based defences anymore and I, I guess Becky I'll uh, maybe I'll ask you to kind of give a sense of why do you think it is why isn't this more broadly used 
Yes. Um, I think probably the primary reason is um, having a good understanding of how these um, nature-based coastal defences function. Uh, so they're, they're quite novel, especially the hybrid approaches. And so in some cases it's seen as more of a risk to use these nature-based coastal defences rather than just putting a hard structure there. But I guess what we show in the Nature Climate Change paper is that actually there's a continuum of different environments that we have on the coast, and they range from, say, being very high-energy wave-exposed shorelines to more lower-energy shorelines, and also in terms of the infrastructure on the shorelines. So it might be in some cases we have lots of infrastructure and it's really high risk, but in other cases we have quite a bit of space before we're going to lose anything that's of value to us. Um, and these are not necessarily just built infrastructures. It could be, say, natural infrastructure like um, an important wetland or, um, or even cultural um, significance. And... Um, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm going to jump in because I've got a, a thought on this one too. That, uh, as you said, uh, what what Dr. Beach, the thing that struck me was um, sometimes, even though, as Becky's saying, that you know, that there's data out there, there is examples where this has been used globally. Uh, you you know, you can you can walk into certain places in the world where they've been doing this for quite some time. Um, the people that build. Um, coastal defences are coastal engineers and the manuals that they follow have examples <laughs> right. of how to build hard structures. Yeah. How to use some and, concrete. Exactly. And, 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 and this is not to do with, you know, anything that they're avoiding or anything. It's just that, you know, the profession has grown up doing certain things yeah. certain ways. Yeah. And so it's almost as simple as if you get this in the books that teach the kids that yeah you know, the mm -hmm. next way when the next coastal engineer is out there and she's deciding what she's going to use or whatever it's like oh well i'll use this one instead of that one and so it can sometimes be the simplest changes that you know you need in the system anyway and now tell I us i think Becky, it's understanding where where you can use them yes so that's what we were were um we had this decision support tool in the paper like i was saying that in some environments it's going to be appropriate for these nature-based solutions and it's understanding where and when and communicating that to decision-makers. It has been wonderful talking with you this morning, Becky, and talking about um, our paper and my massive conflict of interest talking about a paper that I've been involved in on air. I think you're allowed to do that. <laughs> you think so? Okay, thank you. Now, tell us, tell, tell, before you go, um, Becky, uh, what's the next nature paper um, for you? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, no, it's science this time. Science. It? Do you think of you in science? Well, that's aim for that. Hey, um, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Dr. Becky Morris from the University of Melbourne. Thanks for having me. See you, Becky. Bye. A very cool process coming up with a little, uh, you know, it's just one of these things where you kind of go, these little simple ideas are so obvious. Oh, yeah, very nice little paper, Anth. It's great. And, and one, one of the things I wanted to ask, Becky, and I know what we need to move on, get Dave Donnelly on the phone here about baby dolphins and all of that. Um, but... There's going to be horses for courses with this. So if, you, if you've got a lot, you know, a lot of erosion happening, then you're going to have to have one particular type of nature-based spot on and, infrastructure and, 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 and as, another. As so Becky, that's where the decisions, yes. the, the real, the knowledge is going to come in. And that's where, um, in, in this paper, there is actually the first time anyone's ever had a decision support system for people who are making those decisions about what to put where and when. Yeah. You're on Radio Mar You are on Radio Marinara. We are welcoming into the studio, well on the airwaves, Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Good morning, Anthony. Dr. Beach, I'm well. How are you guys? 
Very well. I'm very well too. Yeah, we're excited to hear what you've got to talk about, Dave. You sent us an amazing picture <laughs> of, a, of a little of a little common dolphin popping out of the water in Port Phillip Bay. My goodness. We're going to come yeah. back. We're going to come back to that one because you guys are on Winter by the Sea. You're on the whole Winter by the Sea thing. In, what in a couple of weeks? Yeah, that's right. We're uh, we'll be talking about um, the whales of winter. I think we're calling this one, and it's going to be on the 16th of June at 4:30 uh, in the afternoon with the great uh, Mark Rodriguez from Parks Victoria and the Coast Care Group. And so you, people can it's it's online. Yeah, people can like log in. They can see it. They can see the photos, the pickies, the videos. Yeah, it's a PowerPoint presentation, um, and we'll, we'll be presenting uh, a few findings, some news, some information on how to find whales, and it's all done through Microsoft Teams. So it's quite easy to do, and it's uh, all you need to do is get onto the uh, the Coast Care website or their Facebook page, and all the details are there. Awesome. We're going to put a link on Facebook. And now we're going to talk about that dolphin calf that Dr. Beach is so excited about. I've never seen Dr. Beach this excited about a charismatic megafauna before. I showed that to the family. It was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> he just came in going, oh, it's so exciting. Tell us about this. this tell us about this incredible um, little calf. Uh, well, I guess the, the backstory to that is that, um, you know, common dolphins are, are oceanic species. They're typically found um, on continental shelf waters and sometimes beyond. And in Victoria, they're found uh, anywhere along the coastline between sort of 30 and 50 metres. But the, uh, the interesting thing about uh, the Port Phillip Bay common dolphins is that, as far as we're aware, it's the only colonisation of an embayment by this oceanic species. And uh, we first discovered these at Dolphin Research Institute back in 2006, where we thought there was about 13 animals. We now find that there's about 40 to 50 living in the bay in an area fairly small between Oliver's Hill and Dramana. And, um, yeah, we went on a field trip last week or this past week, and uh, lo and behold, we saw some calves that uh, we saw earlier in the year, and we also saw some new calves. So clearly this little community of dolphins is doing really well and we're having some really nice calf survival success, which I think is a really great uh, uh, um, attribute to the health of at least that area of the bay um, with a lot of bait fish in the area and those animals are able to sustain themselves. Um, it's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a beautiful thing. To, and these are not the, the, the Bangaran dolphin. The, um, is it, I got the pronunciation correct there. The, yeah, the, the subspecies or the species of dolphin that we now have down in um, no. southern Australia. No, no, these are common dolphins. So common dolphins, they'll find as delphus. Um, yep. And uh, as I said, they, they're usually an oceanic species, but they, for whatever reason, they've colonised Port Phillip, and uh, there they are. You can see them most days, and they're easy to watch from the land as well, from uh, places like Snapper Point at Mornington. And the way they pop out of the water, and they're, they're kind of like tubby baby-like. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, <laughs> you can see. I, I'm, I'm still banging on about this. <laughs> I just I never thought I'd see you gush so much over over large dolphin like things, Dr. Beach. Hey, and what else is going on, Dave? You got some really interesting sightings happening. Who turned up recently down here? Which whale turned up recently and where have they been? Well, at the moment, we're starting to get a bit of a, a couple of pulses of uh, humpback whales moving through the two bays region. Um, to date, we have a 30, 31 sightings recorded. They're all individual um, validated sightings, that's not re-sites. So these are um, numbers of animals coming through, mostly in groups of one or two. Um, but they're really starting to hit their hit the pace now. We had the first animal uh, inside Port Phillip and Western Port in the past week. 
Um, so they're starting to venture into the bays and then making their way along the coast. And what's really, really cool, you guys are going to love this, is that during the week um, we got a match from a Phillip Island whale uh, using our two-base whale project citizen science program. We gathered flukes, photos of the underside of the tail, and we submit these to platforms where they can do fluke matching. That's just like fingerprint, where we can tell an individual humpback whale by the patterning on the underside of the fluke or the tail. And uh, this week we got news that one of our animals had been matched to Queensland. So it's not unexpected, but it is interesting seeing as we only have 100 fluke ID photographs in our catalogue. And what's even more interesting, it only took him 15 days to get to Stradbroke Island from Phillip Island. Wow. That's pretty amazing stuff. That's the, uh, that's moving at a pace, isn't it? To, I mean, because you, you're not, you're not. I mean, they'd be feeding. They've got to stop them. You know, that's still that's moving. And I, I, can ima- I thought so too. And mm. I can imagine the excitement of getting a match with the fluke. Ah, oh, here we are. We've got one. We've identified one. You know, up in Queensland. It's great. Well, when you think about it, um, Dr. Beach, it's we, uh, we've got a hundred flukes in our catalogue. It's you know, nearly forty thousand animals in the East Australian population. To to have that luck that somebody else photographed your yeah. animal and happened to load it onto the same platform you yeah. did, yeah, it's pr- it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. It also does suggest, as you're as you're kind of intimating, Dave, that there's a lot more of this traffic than than the data have shown previously. Because if you know, you, you, if there's if there's a hundred on there, and all of a sudden, boom, you've got a hit. Um, there must be a lot more movement. Um, and as you as your numbers grow on on the database, you might start to see that. Absolutely. And look, we are growing all the time. We're not growing as quickly as the whale, whale population is, but we're getting there. And we're, just, we're implementing some new programs this year, including dedicated uh, time effort of our project with six of our most reliable observers at six of our most yeah, reliable sites, I guess, best sites to see whales. So we're hoping to do a little bit of um, effort-based analysis and see if we can get a population estimate through using those data over the next few years. That's just fantastic. Anything else as the music slowly fades up below us? Anything else that you want to... I'd just like to say to everybody, please, if you're out there and you're looking for whales and you happen to see one, get onto Podwatch on the Dolphin Research Institute website and report your sightings to us. Every little bit helps us understand these animals more and that leads to great conservation outcomes. So please do do that and uh, we look forward to seeing you online very, very soon. In fact, on the 16th of June. In the wonderful Winter by the Sea, which is Parks Victoria, Radio Marinara and a whole bunch of other people putting together. Thanks heaps, Dave. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to talk to you after such a big break between chats. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice one, Dave. Thank you very much. Dave Donnelly from, of course, Killer Whales Australia and Marinara and a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, you have been listening. I want to thank... Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Beach. I would like to thank our guests for today. Probably should thank uh, Dr. Becky Morris from the University of Melbourne, of course, Dave Donnelly, and Dr. Beach. And I thank you, Anthony, as well. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, next week there's a whole bunch of other stuff on, so uh, the doctors are lined up. They're ready to go between studios, uh, and we'll, um, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.